All righty, well, good morning, church. If you missed that underground session, we had a really fun night. Uh, if you were not there, we had tacos, which were amazing. So everybody had full bellies so that we were ready to hear about the faith implications of artificial intelligence. So thanks to Chris and to Paul and to the panel and really everybody who served to make that night a success. If you were not able to attend, uh, the video is going to be up on our uh, YouTube channel later this week. You can go there and subscribe to see all of our videos that are up there. Uh, you can watch or rewatch uh, the event there. Uh, also, we're going to have some follow-up episodes on our Underground Sessions uh, podcast. It's also on the channel if you want to know more about that topic. Now, today we're moving along in our Nehemiah series. Today we're actually in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, and I would like to invite you to turn there in your Bibles today. Last week, Pastor Dave talked about Nehemiah chapter 8, and he taught us the value of hearing from God's Word. Well, in chapter 9, the main theme is prayer. So last week we heard from God, this week God's going to hear from us. Anybody, does anybody out there struggle with prayer, though? Right? Anybody? Yeah, I see a couple hands out there. Uh, in this message, what I want to do is I want to explore the reason many of us struggle with prayer. And I think Nehemiah chapter 9 exposes the reason for our struggles and simultaneously teaches us how to pray. Now, if you attended the underground sessions, you know that AI can do many things. It's a tool. That was one of the things we emphasized at the event. And if you're a prayer struggler, I got to tell you, AI can even, help you how to, can even help you to pray. Yes, uh, seriously. In fact, in preparation for this message, I came across two tools that could maybe help you. Would you believe there's a website called writemeaprayer.com? It looks like this. In fact, what it claims is that it's a prayer generator powered by the latest AI technology to help you in times of need. Oh, yes, you, you, can, you can write the topic, you can write who it's for, you can even ask for uh, the language for it to be in. You, you can even see recent prayer requests from around the world, all over the world. People are writing into AI to help them pray. Now, if you'd rather use your phone, you can download the iBIP app, iBIP or I Believe in Prayer. Now, with this app, you can get auto-generated prayers daily. In fact, over time, the system will learn you and will refine your prayer request. You can even give it feedback on how well it's generating prayers for you. The whole purpose of that app is to help you how to pray. Now, again, if you're a prayer struggler out there, right, here you go. I just solved your problems. You can ask iBIP to close us in prayer today, and then we're done. Now, I can tell you, some of you might be wondering, is he serious? What's he talking about? Well, I do think that AI can help us with some things, but actually praying for us is not one of them. Because praying or talking to God, that's not something we can outsource to a machine. Our creator has given us a soul, and he's given us agency or the ability to make decisions. And we can't give that up because God wants our whole heart. He wants to hear our deepest desires and our struggles. He is our heavenly Father who cares about us. And so a machine can accomplish a task, but it can't express emotions. And if AI can become a tool to encourage us to, and remind us to pray, that, that's wonderful. But, but, uh, but prayer is something that must come from your heart to God's ears. Now, I want you to notice something about AI, though. It exposes something in our hearts. Because I know many Christians who are disciplined at reading the Bible, at memorizing the Bible, at attending church, but when you ask people about their prayer life, many people cringe. 
And, and I was thinking this week, why is that? So many mature people, why? Why? Why, why am I saying, mm, I struggle with prayer? Because it's vulnerable. It's, it's honest. It's, it's hard to open ourselves up to God. In fact, some of us would rather hide behind an AI algorithm. But, but isn't that artificial? <laughs> why do so many of us struggle with prayer? Or you may want to pray, but it gets shortchanged. You, you pray during a crisis. Now, why is that? Well, let me first start today with a definition of prayer. What exactly is prayer? The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines prayer this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. Prayer is offering up of our desires unto God. That's simple. That's clear. Now, who would not want to do that? Well, our life, I think our prayer life many times feels like a checklist, but rather, prayer, though, is supposed to be the relational glue between us and God. Our prayer lives should reflect who we are with our Creator and what we believe about Him. But many of us struggle with prayer, I'll mention a couple ways, because first, we wonder, does God hear my prayers? In fact, you may have prayed something specific, but He didn't answer, or He didn't answer as you think He should have. You know, you say, I prayed that God would heal my loved one, but He didn't. Well, then God can't be trusted, right? I don't want to tell him my desires, right? So we stop praying. I'll give you another example. We don't pray because we don't want to really be known. That even though God knows us inside and out, we don't pray because then we would have to admit uh, to him our thoughts and our desires and our sins. And that would be painful and shameful for us because we don't really believe that God is gracious and merciful. And so we stop praying. Another reason we don't pray is because we don't think we need God. And especially in our 21st century American culture, especially in the Northeast Corridor, we, many of us fancy ourselves to be self-sufficient. I'm a self-made person. I don't need help. In fact, it feels shameful or it feels weak to ask for help, even from God. Now, I want you to pause and just consider that last statement that I just made. Isn't that, is, what's wrong with that? We don't pray because we don't think we need God. The Heidelberg Catechism, one of my favorites, uh, asks this question. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? And the answer that it gives is this. Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness which God requires of us. Moreover, God will give his grace and his Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. How is your prayer life? Do you desire to run to God, or would you rather outsource your prayers to ChatGPT? Can I suggest today that prayer is essential? We must learn how to pray. You know, the late uh, Tim Keller spoke about his own battle with prayerlessness, and the truth is, yes, even Christian leaders struggle with it. And he wrote this book on prayer later in his life, and stated that it wasn't until later in middle age that he really, really discovered prayer after teaching a course on the Psalms and walking through the darkness of 9-11 and several health battles. Uh, his wife, Kathy, urged him to do something that they had never done before in their lives, and that was pray together every single night, every night. And then she used this illustration to crystallize her feelings. She said this to Tim. She said, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. 
Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss it. And then she said to him, well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. See, prayer is that important. Why do we miss it? Church, we need to take the prayer pill every day. How? That's the question. How do we do it? If it's that important, how can our prayers become authentic rather than artificial? And that's what Nehemiah 9 is about. Nehemiah 9 is about prayer. After the people hear God's word, they pray, they confess. And Nehemiah then shows us how to pray. So how do you pray authentically? Well, if you want to connect with God, if you want him to hear your prayers, you need at least four things. Number one, you need the right preparation. Number two, you need the right posture. Number three, you need the right perspective. And yes, number four, you, then, then you can make the right petition. So let's pray and ask God to teach us how to pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, thank you for my friends that are here. And Lord, as we examine Nehemiah 9, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you prepare our hearts, Lord, that we would be uh, people who would love to run to you, our Father, and give our hearts and pray to you. Help us today, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you want to develop authentic prayers, you need first the right preparation. So if I come back to that AI illustration at the beginning, I'm sure that you can search the internet and curate some wonderful prayers from the saints of old. And, and I do think those are helpful, you know, fair, fair enough. But if prayer is not coming from our hearts, it's going to be artificial, not authentic. And I think that's what many of us wrestle with. We want our prayers to be authentic. How do we get our hearts there? Well, as I mentioned, last week, Pastor Dave walked us through Nehemiah 8, and central to that chapter was the Word of God, the Scriptures. And it sets up beautifully chapter 9 because this prayer is a response to the conviction that they found in the Scriptures. So Nehemiah 9, 1 to 2 says this. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So this is a public assembly of the people of God. They separate themselves off. They make a corporate confession of sin. As Christians, we're part of a covenant community. They did this together. How did they prepare themselves for this time of confession? Well, notice three words right there. Fasting, sackcloth, and then the dust of the, or the, the earth, earth on their heads. As I explain these words, I, I, want, I want you to think, could you do this in preparation for prayer? So for the first word is fasting. Fasting, if you don't know, that's a spiritual discipline where we give up something uh, important to us. And often that involves food, but you can fast from anything. Because the point of fasting is to put aside some earthly desire or need so you can focus on the Lord. Do you have a regular practice of fasting, preparing yourself for prayer? That's a lost art in Christian formation. Second, sackcloth. Now you might say, well, what, what is that? What is sackcloth? I, I, I don't know about that. Well, in the ancient world, when somebody wore sackcloth, it was a symbol of humility and mourning. Sackcloth is a burlap that's used in potato sacks. Anybody done a potato sack race recently? 
Now imagine you took that potato sack and, you put, and, you, and then you took your shirt off and you put the potato sack on your bare skin. How would that feel? Right? It's itchy. Uh, it would make you super uncomfortable. It would be like there was like a thousand mosquitoes in there biting, making your skin all red. But the point is this. The people wore this clothing to make themselves purposefully uncomfortable. It was a reminder to them that their sin should make them uncomfortable. Does your sin make you uncomfortable? If not, you need to adjust your heart in prayer. And then third, it says, they put earth, or dirt rather, on their heads. And that dirt was to remind them that they were unclean and how dirty they were before a holy God. So so let me just sum up this preparation exercise they did. The people of God stopped eating, so they were hungry. They wore really uncomfortable clothes, Their skin was red from the irritation, and they covered their heads with dirt so they needed a shower. When was the last time you prepared yourself for prayer like that? (laughs) You know, at this point, they were reminded of their need for God. That was the whole point of the exercise. Now, the reason so many of us, I think, don't run to God in authentic prayer is because we don't see a need for it. We are too comfortable. And the whole point of what the Israelites were doing was to make them un comfortable. And we have to beware comfortable Christianity. Because when you become so comfortable in your Christian walk, that's when you become ineffective for the kingdom. You will become disconnected then from the king himself. Let me ask you, when was the last time you stepped out in faith and did something really hard for Christ? And it doesn't have to be something life-altering, Maybe you needed to tell somebody at work that you were a Christian and you wanted to pray for them and and that, that made you uncomfortable. Can I suggest the reason we don't sense a need for God many times is because we're not doing anything uncomfortable for God. We need to put on the sackcloth. Some of us need to get a little uncomfortable for Jesus. Start fasting. Get some dirt on your head because it reminds us of our need for him. Authentic prayer requires the right preparation every single day. And when, because when life is comfortable and we don't sense our need for God, our hearts start to grow cold. They get icy. In fact, every night when you go to sleep, and picture an icy layer building up over top of your heart, your heart muscle. And that happens every single night. And then imagine that you wake up the next morning, you have this thin layer of ice on your heart, and you have to, you have to, you have to get rid of it. You have to break the ice. You have to melt it away so that your heart can, can turn to fire. You need that. You have to break the ice with authentic prayer. You know, there was a well-known song we sang uh, growing up. It talked about lighting the fire in your soul. Light the fire in my soul. Fan the flame. Make me whole. Lord, you know where I've been. Light the fire in my heart again. That's what we need every single morning. Because when your heart is on fire, then you can make the commitment that we see in verse 3. It says this, And they, the whole people, stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. All right, so last week, Pastor Dave gave you all the business about the amens. Can I get an amen today? All right, hey, look, he trained you well. All right, so this week... We're going to talk about the length of the service. These guys in here, right here, had a three-hour prayer service. Can I get an amen? All right, about half of you are into that. 
Some of you like, you look at your watch and say, 60 minutes, come on, we got to get out of here. Got breakfast, got to get a bagel. Now, we're not going to have a three-hour service, don't worry. Although I've been to them, believe me. But I want to ask you something. What does that attitude reveal about our hearts, right? If, if, is something always more important than my time with God? Is there always another reason that I, I can't pray? Because we should be asking ourselves, do we desire Jesus? Because when you do, that's when you experience the blessing. Look at verse 5. It says, Then the Levites, the priests, said, Stand up and bless the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That's the blessing of being in the presence of the Lord. What was going on in the hearts of the people that they stood up and they praised God? Because imagine all of us right now standing up and, and, and praying at the same time out loud, praising God. Can you imagine that? That requires preparation of our hearts. So now some of you might be objecting right now and you say, well, can't prayer be spontaneous? Well, of course, but this whole section is all about constantly seeking to get our hearts ready for prayer. And we should be ready to pray at any moment. The preparation phase of prayer forces us to ask the question, who are we? We take a look into our heart. Now, we're firmly in November 2023. Hard, hard to believe it. But the holidays are coming, right? And some of you right now, you're putting up the Christmas decorations. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. I can see it on your faces, right? You're chomping at the bit to prepare, to get the tree up, to, to put up the tinsel, to put up the socks. You got to get Santa on the lawn, some of us will spend hours, days, in the kitchen preparing for Thanksgiving. In fact, I learned last Saturday that ChatGPT can help you with some recipes. Now, now why do we prepare? We prepare because we want to have a wonderful time connecting with our family and friends. So for the holidays, we prepare, we commit to the task, and then we experience the blessing of relationship. And my question is, why should it be any different with God? So if you want an authentic prayer life, you have to prepare your heart. Preparation shows who we are and what's in our heart. And we need that to get to the next component of authentic prayer, which is this. You need to have the right posture. The right preparation, then the right posture. Now, posture is a word that's often associated with body position. So you should have, right, good posture when you're standing, when you're sitting. What would they say? Fix your posture, right? All of you, sit up. There's a physicality to it. But the same is true with our heart. We could slouch spiritually, or we could be really rigid spiritually. And that's why preparation is the first step. So if you prepare well, it can then cause your hearts to come to God in prayer with, with a different attitude. We will see ourselves rightly as sinners in need of a Savior, and we'll see God rightly as a holy, almighty, powerful God. He's the one who's worthy of praise. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 all the way to verse 38 is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. Now, what we're getting right here in this chapter is the abridged version, not the three-hour version. Look at how it begins in verse 6. It says this, You are the Lord, you alone you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So how does this prayer start? It starts with God. 
Right? It starts with an acknowledgement of who God is and the worship that is owed to him. That's the same place Jesus begins in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's like, it's like it's the same author, right? Nehemiah starts with God. He says, essentially, you're the only God. Uh, you made everything. You control everything. You are worthy of worship. That's the right posture when we come to prayer. Can I invite you to reflect for just a moment? Is that how you pray? Now, some of us probably do, but, but many of us don't. And, and I, think, I, I think more often when we haven't prepared our hearts well, we come to prayer with this entitlement attitude, right? We, we, we come to prayer thinking that God is there to serve us, right? So we come and we say, God, impress me. God, give me. God, serve me. After all, God, don't you know the world revolves around me? Now, some of us are nicer about it than others, but the attitude is the same. We just mask it better. And then what happens is when God doesn't do what we want, we start to complain that he doesn't seem to answer our prayers. Well, did you know that God doesn't promise to hear and answer all of our prayers? And you say, well, hold on. What? What do you mean? What? Doesn't God know how important I am? Well, whether God hears or answers certain prayers is tied to the posture of our heart. What does James 4 tell us? James 4.3 says this, you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly or with wrong motives. You spend it on your passions. And then he just goes for it. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? So he says you don't receive because you ask wrongly. It's your motive. It's your posture in praying. The posture of your heart is rigid because you love the world rather than me, he says. How about Isaiah 1? He gets after it too. He says, look at this. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So what should you do? He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, and seek justice and correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, I'm glad. Some, some, some other people are saying, I missed that verse. Right? Isaiah says, you didn't do the heart preparation, now the posture of your heart, it's wicked. And if that's the case, God's not going to listen. God's going to hide his face from you. And then, for some of us, and then when God still doesn't give us what we want, then we get mad at him. We say, how dare you, God? How dare you not listen to me? You know what? I'm going to show you. I'm going to stop believing in you. See, if you want authentic prayer, you need the right heart posture. And if that verse seems harsh to you, I'd like to suggest a reason why. Again, it's how we treat prayer. Because, I'll give you an example. I found this satirical prayer this week that was based on an overhaul of the public confession in the Book of Common Prayer. And I'm going to read it here in just a second. I want you to just ask yourself, is this how my prayers go sometimes? All right? Here's the prayer. It goes like this. Let's pray. Oh, benevolent and easygoing parent, we have occasionally made minor errors of judgment but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed 
to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We're glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. Amen? All right, thank you for not saying amen to that. (laughs) But ask yourself, is this the posture that sometimes I come to prayer? We need a different posture. Because the right posture answers the question, who is God? And Nehemiah 9.6 tells us he's the Lord of heaven and earth. How can you pray authentically? Another reason we don't pray is because we don't know how. I can't pray, you might say. You say, Pastor Bob, I'm not good at it. Well, the good news is that Jesus showed us how to pray, right? Along with Nehemiah 9. He just simply says, pray like me. Author John Bombardo reminds us that Jesus invites us to pray like him. He writes this. He says, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, frees us from the tyranny of spiritual creativity. Some of you feel like you need to be really creative in prayer. He says, don't do that. It allows us to rest in the confidence of something certain and true. Instead of fabricating something snappy to garner God's attention, Jesus would just have us lose all such originality and simply plagiarize at his own invitation. See, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, right there. And if you have a problem with praying the same thing over and over again, it's the very words of Jesus. They give you the right heart posture every time. That's authentic prayer, praying the words of Jesus from your heart. So we need the right preparation. We need the right posture. But then thirdly, we also need to see the bigger picture because all of us get discouraged in life and we start to wonder, is God with us? And so it's then that we need the right perspective when we come to prayer. That's number three. And the question for this point is basically, what has God done? Right? How has God worked in history? Will he still intervene in my life? That's the question for this section of the prayer. Because again, the reason many of us struggle with prayer is because we don't think God can do what he has done or what he says he can do. And and so most of the prayer in Nehemiah 9, verses 7 to verse 31, that's most of the prayer, is all about how God has worked in the history of the people of Israel up to this point. It's the revelation of God's redemptive action in history. And what prayer does is prayer calls us to remember, to remember what God has done. Remember, remember, remember. So we so easily forget. So let me walk you briefly through this. There's seven main sections to this this part. I'm going to walk you through them briefly. And as I do, I just want you to listen to the story. So verse 7 and 8 begin this way. It says, You are the Lord. They're still praying here. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land. And you've kept your promise, for you are righteous. So the story begins with Abraham. Right back at creation, God creates the world. Adam and Eve sin. The world is corrupted. And so God has to do something about it. And what does he do? In the process of bringing about redemption to the world, he chooses a people for himself. And if today you are in Christ, 
If you've surrendered your life to him, you are also chosen. You are a child of the promise, Paul tells us in Galatians 3. God has called you. He's awakened your heart. You have to remember that when you pray. You come and say, now I can pray to my father. You've got to keep that perspective. God loves to save people for himself. He poured out his love into your heart if you're a Christian. Well, the story continues, verse 9. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So God's people eventually become slaves in the land of Egypt. Their affliction is terrible, and they cry out to their God. And then what happens? God saves them. God, God delivers them. God shows up. And what does Nehemiah say? It says God made a name for himself. All the peoples around knew about the God of Israel. In other words, the people saw his power. In your prayer life, do you believe that God still works miracles? Do you believe that God still delivers people? Because maybe even he's even worked something in your own life, delivering you from darkness. you got to remember. you got to remember. That's going to give you the right perspective. Well, the story continues, verse 13. It says, he says, you came down on Mount Sinai, and you spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So now God delivers his people through Moses, right? Now we're at Moses, Exodus. And then he gives them the law so they can engage in right living. You know, many people get caught up with the law, right? They think, well, in the Christian life, it's all about the rules. But if you shift your perspective, what you can start to see is that God gives this law out of love, right? Following the law is the best way to live. It's actually a gift. The law is a gift. And then after giving the law, God blesses them and he cares for them in the wilderness. Remember what God has done, right? Too often we forget. We're stubborn. Anybody out there stubborn? Yes, that's why we need prayer, right? We have to come to God. We have to confess because we're like the people of Israel. Look at verse 16. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. See, the next section of the story talks, tells you about n basically numbers in Deuteronomy. While the people are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting to get to the land, they, they fight against God's will. They act entitled. They say, God, where is this land you promised us? Where is it? And then they attempt to go their own way. Now that phrase, stiffen their necks, actually refers to the yoke that you would put on oxen who then fight against it. They're constantly fighting against their, their master. They don't want to be led. They're stubborn. And that's the story of Israel. And that's the story of us. We forget what God has done. We want to rule our own lives. But God lovingly corrects them he corrects us. And then we read this in verse 17. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. God is faithful to forgive. He's slow to anger. Do you see what this prayer right here in Nehemiah 9 is doing? It's telling us that God 
what God did for us. It's telling us how to act even when God delivers, we forget. And so he lovingly corrects us, but he's always with us. Nehemiah continues on and he tells the story of Joshua entering the promised land, chapter 9, verse 22 to 25. Shout out to the Joshua class. They're over there studying that right now. And, and, then, and then he tells us about the time of the judges in verses 26 to 29. That was a time when the people turned away despite warnings that God was going to, um, warnings and God constantly came and rescued them. Eventually, they were carried away into exile in verse 30. And through it all, we're told that God forgave. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's abounding in love. That is who our God is. That's what the prayer points to. So the main point of this prayer is to give us perspective on God's work. And the subtext through it all is remember, remember, remember. Nehemiah 9, 7 to 31 walks us through the entire history of Israel to this point for the purpose of giving us perspective and context. Why? Because the reason we don't pray many times is we forget all that God has done. How many of us do that? We forget what God has done. We say, God, what have you done for me lately? Right? I know you blessed me last year. <laughs> I know you helped me through that problem. But what about this year? We don't pray with expectation that God is who he said he is, and we start to doubt his revelation in Scripture. But then we get to the climax of this prayer, verse 31. It says this, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, or for you are a gracious and merciful God. And some of us need to hear that today. You are a gracious and merciful God. God. The reason some of us don't pray or the reason we don't have a deep prayer life is we think God is done with us. Right? We think God has forgotten us. We think God will not forgive us. But this one verse right here shows you who God is. Gracious, merciful. In his mercy, he did not make an end to them, the people of Israel, or forsake them. And Israel gave God plenty of reasons to abandon them, but he didn't. So I want to give you a challenge this week. How are you remembering what God has done in your life? Maybe you need to get a journal and write down some things. Maybe you need to get a place in your house and put a reminder there. Because I'm telling you, it's so easy to forget. Don't. Don't. How will you remember what God has done? Because God, God, God knows what you're walking through. He's a good father who wants a relationship with us in prayer. Theologian Herman Bavink captures the sentiment beautifully in his book, The Wonderful Works of God. Speaking of God's works, he writes this. He says, he is a God revealing himself and a God showing himself, and therefore he's full of truth and also full of grace. The word of promise, I will be a God unto thee, included with itself from the very moment in which it was uttered, the fulfillment, I am thy God. And then he says this, God him, gives himself to his people in order that his people should give themselves to him. Do you know that God has revealed himself so that we might know who he is? Do you know that he is a God who has given himself chiefly on the cross so that you would be his people? Now he wants us to give ourselves to him. You know, in a few moments you can see here that we're going to come to the table to remember what God has done. Do you know why we do communion every month? 
because we forget. And we see that tension in the history of Israel. We see that tension in our own hearts. God chooses, we rebel. Right? God saves, we forget. God allows judgment, and we think he's forgotten, but he's always there wanting us to come back to him, to come back to the foot of the cross. He's a God who's gracious and merciful, and he always will be. You know, nothing gives you a glimpse into God's heart quite like having children of your own. And my kids are getting to the age where their necks are becoming <clears throat> a little stiff. Anybody out there know what that's like? So you become a parent, and you think, I'm finally going to be the one who does it right. Yeah, come on, I thought that was funnier than that. Come on. <laughs> who is, you know, you say, who's, what's everybody complaining about? Come on, how hard could this be? Right, I'm going to love my kids, and of course, they're going to be the most obedient kids ever. And then you wake up from a dream, sobbing, saying, what is wrong with me? I'm such a terrible parent. Well, my kids, you know, you ask them to do something, and right before my eyes, they turn into oxen. You know, they fight against the yoke. I have a little one, Zoe. She's two. Two. And this one, I say, Zoe, come here. Come here. And then she just stares at me, like stares me down, and then just says, no. And then she runs away just laughing at me, like, what, what did you think you were going to do here? There was one incident with our oldest where she was being disobedient, she was being stubborn, and as a consequence, we sent her up to her room, and while she was up there, we still have a baby monitor, because her and my little one sleep in the same room, and as she goes up at, during this punishment, I can hear her through the monitor, uh, and, and she's praying, and, and she's praying these words that we had listened to in, in, a, in a catechism recently. She's saying, prayer is pouring out your hearts to God. And so she's praying to the Lord, praying out loud, pouring out her heart, giving this heartfelt prayer and asking God to help her. And I'm hearing this through the monitor. And I got to tell you, in that moment, I was just filled with conviction because I'm asking myself, when was the last time I prayed like that? Right? I'm listening to her as her father, and I'm thinking, this is what God wants. Right? Nobody loves a disciplinarian, but Hebrews 12 tells us what? God disciplines those he loves. It's in those moments that we come back to God because we're convicted. We recognize our need for him. And so I went upstairs. I gave her a, a big hug. She said she was sorry. And, and that relationship was restored and it grew. Because this is what God wants. This is what he wants. And, that, and that, that's what gives you perspective in prayer. He wants what's best for us. He loves us. And sometimes God has to get you to that place where you can be really authentic. Do you have the right perspective in prayer? Do you remember what God has done in your life? That'll change how you pray. So you make the right preparation, you get the right heart posture, and then you look over your life and you get the right perspective. And then, then, we can offer an authentic prayer made with the right petition. So let me mention this briefly. Because this is the problem. The problem with our prayers so many times is we run right to the petition. We say, God, I want this. Give it to me. Now, a petition just simply means a request. And some of us have a hard time asking for anything in our lives, let alone asking something from God. 
But then you get to verse 32 and 37, and Nehemiah is repeating these themes that have already been stated in verses 6 to 31. The people confess their sins uh, and, and the sins of their people again. They're, they're going back through this, this preparation part. They're taking an honest assessment of their lives. But then in verse 32, it, it begins where the prayer started. It begins with God. Look at verse 32. It says, now, therefore... Our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Like, I remember what you did. And then they ask this. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. They say, O Lord, you are mighty and awesome. You are faithful with the covenant. You love us. But then they make this request, this petition. And what is it that they ask? They say, let not all this hardship that we've gone through seem little to you that has come upon us. Now, why would they ask that? I mean, I mean, listen, didn't we just walk through this whole prayer where they talked about how God delivered them, how God saved them, how God was working in their midst? Why are they asking this? Well, if you keep reading on, uh, what happens is they reiterate that they and their leaders have not kept the law, that they've not followed God, that they've, they've not, and he's been gracious in the midst of that. They confess that, but then we read this in verse 36 and 37. It says this. They say, behold, we are slaves this day, right, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins, they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And what? And we are in great distress. What are they saying? They're saying we are still slaves in this land. We're still subject to the Persian Empire. We're, we're, they're saying, Lord, because we sin, we're in distress. What are they saying? Deliver us. Deliver us, O oh great God. Remember us. Remember us. Return us to where we were before we were in exile. And that's an honest authentic request. It's the right petition offered with an authentic, repentant heart. But, but, but maybe they're wondering, is God going to answer my prayers? Is he going to act like he did in history? And that's the same question that many of us ask. Can you relate? Right? Many of us struggle with prayer because it feels like God is far away. It feels like he hasn't heard our cries when we're in exile. Even right now, life has not turned out as we hoped. And we cry out like the people of Israel, deliver us. And we ask, will a deliverer come? Well, what Israel didn't see, but what we can see now, is that 400 years later, a deliverer would come to give them the fulfillment for which they were looking and that deliverer would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would overturn the tables of the temple. He would confront the religious Pharisees. And then he would die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when he did, that veil in the temple, it tore in two. So that now the presence of God is in the heart of every believer. Now we don't have to go to a priest to go to God. We can go right to him in prayer if we seek him. How do you pray authentically? Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer, who is God in the flesh, tells us, ask, make a petition, get your heart right, but then ask. God knows our need, but he still wants us to come to him and ask. What does Jesus tell us in Luke? We're going to study Luke. Luke chapter 11, verse 9 to 10. 
Jesus says, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Are you doing that? Are you running toward Jesus or away from him? Because the right petition occurs when we honestly seek the Lord with a right heart. Artificial intelligence can give you a lot of information. It can answer some, some of your questions. It can even spit out a prayer for you. But it can't make your heart right. It can't repent for you. You have to do that. And that's what Nehemiah 9 shows us. How do you pray authentically? Well, I'd invite you to look at those four components on the screen and ask, where's God calling you to grow so your prayer life can deepen? Are you making the right preparation in your prayer life, or are you too comfortable with your sin? Do you have the right posture, or are you telling God what to do? Do you have the right perspective, or have you forgotten all the ways that God has worked in your life? And only when you have those components in order can you make the right petition from a right heart, because then the cry of our heart will be, Lord, I need you. Lord, show yourself to the world. Authentic prayer is not about us, it's about him. How can we surrender our lives to him more and more and more and more? We need to see the bigger picture. Well, Nehemiah 9 ends by looking forward at that bigger picture. It ends with a commitment. Verse 38, they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, many people see these chapters as a larger covenant renewal ceremony between God and his people. And the prayer of Nehemiah 9 inaugurates this commitment to live for him. And it also makes us ask, why do we pray? Because too often we get, we, we get things for ourselves. We pray to get things for ourselves. But the primary purpose of prayer is to align our hearts to God. It's to go deeper in our relationship with him. It's to commit to him in deeper intimacy. And so as we close and, and the worship team comes, I want to offer one final illustration from a guy named Eric Mason. I got it from his commentary. He says, verse 38 is the final forward-looking part of this prayer that orients our hearts towards our relationship with God. And he gives this illustration. He compares it to a wedding. He says this. It's a little like... A married couple making vows at their wedding. And some of you, maybe you did this recently or you have family members who did. So you, the picture is, is in your mind. So imagine a man and a woman have fallen in love and they say, I love you. And then they get engaged. And then they go through premarital counseling. And then they're released from the premarital counseling. And then they start working on the wedding. And then they choose a, a place and they book the banquet hall and the church. And then they ask a preacher and they invite all their family and friends and then they pick out the decorations and the, and the dresses and the suits and they get them made and they're excited, right? It's an exciting thing. Maybe they even write their own vows. And then they discuss what music the bride is going to come into, the most important part of the wedding, right? And, and, and then they've done all of this work and they finally make it to the altar and they say, I do, right? All that goes into the wedding. And then they head to the reception, right? And they dance and they eat and they make speeches, and they celebrate. The day is wonderful and exhausting. 
But he says this. He says, now imagine that couple wakes up the next morning, looks at each other and says, wow, man, that was a great day. And then they just walk away from each other. Wouldn't that be weird? But that's what so many of us do with Jesus. <laughs> Isn't it weird that people confess to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and then they live the rest of their lives like they didn't? It's like saying, all right, I got, I got fire insurance, I'm good. But that's not the point, right? When you're in a covenant with God, his love for us woos us into fulfilling the vows that we've made for him so we can spend time with him, so we can pray to him. Church, authentic prayer is that relational glue of the covenant. And we'll talk about that more next week. But the point is, when we forget to pray, we're treating God like he doesn't matter. Is that what you want? Some of us have walked all the way down the aisle, and then we forget who God is. And he just says, remember. Remember, remember, because I do. We're, on God, we're always on God's mind. He's not going anywhere. Jesus went to the cross, and he could have gotten down, but he didn't. He stayed. In the greatest act of love in the history of the world, Spurgeon says, he stayed for you and for me. So let's not walk away from him. Let's, let's run to him in prayer as we declare our need for him and as we tell the world what he's done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today and thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, Lord. We thank you that we can come to you in prayer. We thank you that we can come to the table and celebrate who you are and what you have done. Lord, right now I pray that you would prepare our hearts to remember your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.